may be seated. Father, we do just arise and we come to your Son. We're thankful for your embrace, how you embrace us in mercy, how we need it, how I need it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and that you would speak through me. God, I ask that you would, you would sober us um, to what Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. God, I pray that you would also give us great joy in what Jesus has done for us. You've given us such good news. I pray that you would help us to hear, hear this call. I pray where hearts are hard, that you would soften. God, I pray where hearts are looking for joy um, in temporary places. I pray that you would give true and lasting joy. Father, help us to hear your frankness uh, toward the issue of lust, and I pray that you would um, help us to respond uh, and to come to Jesus. In your name, amen. All right. hope everybody's comfy, because uh, as the sermon progresses, you may not be. Um, as many of you know, uh, recently we finished a lengthy sermon series on our new statement of faith and our beliefs as a church. We preach through what we believe the Bible teaches about various Christian doctrines. We adopted a new statement of faith, and this was important for us to do in a culture of tolerance and pluralism. When we draw clear lines, that's necessary. It's essential to our witness as a church. Nonetheless, I think in some ways, series like that can be kind of easy to preach and relatively easy to listen to. They can be received impersonally. And we don't want to be the kind of church, I don't want to be the kind of Christian that lets doctrine get sinfully compartmentalized up in my head and not land on my heart. That we would not be a church that just believes the right things, but that what we believe would affect our day-to-day lives. And I know that I greatly struggle at times with a disconnect between what I know in my head and what I experience in my heart, in my soul, in my life. So I love, I love that we are moving uh, from what we believe about particular statements of faith to the kind of life Jesus calls us to live We all need to hear what Jesus says about the human heart in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been in church a long time, it can be easy to neatly, to impersonally check off your list of beliefs, to think that's enough and you're good to go. But it's much more difficult when Jesus starts addressing matters in our hearts, when he starts poking around at sensitive, hidden areas within our souls. Jesus knows that we are prone to use theology as a cover to not deal with real issues in our heart. In the Gospel of John, the Samaritan woman did this when Jesus confronted her on her current and past sexual sin issues. She deflected the heart questions that hit too close to home and she brought up a contemporary political and theological controversy about mountains and where to worship. And we do this too. You and I love to use anything to self-protect, to keep us from being vulnerable. And we'll even use the Bible to do so. So in this series, Jesus wants to tear off the mask that we wear. He wants to rip off the trappings of just external religion, and he wants to expose our hearts. And so you may have found it easy to mostly nod your head in agreement throughout the What We Believe About series, but you may find it a little bit more difficult to not get a little nervous Uh, and itchy when we raise the issues of what Jesus says about so many different sins. And this is good for you. And it's good because Jesus is after all of us. This is saying Jesus, God's Son, is after all of us. He's after our heads. He's after our hearts. He wants every piece 
And so we do not want to be the kind of people that only know God on paper, but who love him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds. Last week, Pastor Bob uh, contrasted a Pharisee and a tax collector and how one of Jesus' aims in the Sermon on the Mount is to expose our self-righteousness as people. We need to get used to hearing this. In the Gospel of Matthew, which we're going to be going through over a long time, um, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, and he does so severely in Matthew 23. If you've read Matthew chapter 23, it is an utter, frank rebuke against self-righteousness and Phariseeism. We also see how Jesus welcomes sinners. He welcomes them liberally throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He does this in Matthew 10, like we read. Or excuse me, I think it was Matthew 9. This emphasis shouldn't be surprising because Matthew, the writer, the writer of this gospel was an ex-tax collector. So he knows his heart and he knows the hearts of those around him. Pharisees are masters of statement of faith. They know their Bibles. They can argue theology all day long. They know how to raise their hands at the right times during the worship service. They love to point fingers out there at everybody else instead of back at themselves. And so when their hearts get exposed, they get panicky. And so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is going to break up categories of us versus them, of they're the problem. It's those people out there. It's that group of sinners over there. Jesus is going to level the playing field. He's redefining who sinners actually are. He shows that religious people and irreligious people are all alike. Every single one of them, all of us, all of them are in that category of sinner. It's just that some know it better than others. The old 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal said this, There are only two kinds of men. There are only two kinds of men. The righteous who think they are sinners and the sinners who think they are righteous. So Jesus is calling out pretenders. He wants us to stop pretending we're better than we are. He wants us to feel the weight of what it means to follow him in every single area of our lives. He will not put up with external religion. You can have a robust statement of faith in an impure heart. I know I can. So today we're going to let Jesus meddle with a very private area of our hearts, with one of our pet secret sins, that of sinful sexual lust. We're going to look at what Jesus says about lust in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. So if you're not already there, that's where we're going to be. Four verses. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. Jesus' word. So I have five points for us from our text. But before I unpack these, I want to lay the stage with two important things. I think I need to knock down an objection and also frame Jesus' words in our current cultural context. So for the first, many object that Christians and the Christians' God is obsessed with sex only in a negative and repressive way. Or that bodily pleasures are lower, are more base, and even kind of sinful compared to spiritual pleasures of the soul. Or that followers of Jesus practice asceticism and are austere, strictly serious, and all of those are wrong. And so we need to say this clearly from the outset, because at sermons like this one, where Jesus says no to sexual lust clearly, and at sermons like the one Levi preached several weeks ago, where the biblical witness says no to homosexuality as God's design, that make many think that Christianity is anti-sex or maybe just kind of allergic to the whole deal. And that's not so. Christianity is not mainly about being against something, but being for something. God is not a prude. The triune God invented sex. The Father, through Jesus the Word, created human beings as sexual beings. So God designed sex to take place within a covenant between a married man and woman for pleasure and procreation. Not either or, both and. God made the body and all of its parts good. 
Holy Spirit is not squeamish on the issue either. He breathed out an erotic love poem as a whole book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon. And if I started reading some of those passages, we would start blushing. For instance, just one. (laughs) Song of Solomon 416. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Not an invitation for eating strawberries. It is, it is not um, a picture of a special quiet time with the Lord Jesus. It's an invitation of a bride for her husband to delight in her sexually. So God is totally pro-sex when it happens according to his design. We have to say that. It's true. This is the case in the New Testament, too. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul instructs husbands and wives to enjoy sex as a means of fighting satanic temptation. The Bible doesn't blush. The other issue, since sin is desecrated and defiled the goodness of God's creation, our human hearts and our culture swims in a cesspool of sexual lust. I don't think you can deal with what Jesus says about lust in our day and age without naming pornography. It needs to be named. And it needs to be named in the church and not remain in the shadows. And so that's why I'm going to address it. You're crazy if you think that that, doesn't, that that issue doesn't happen in this very room full of human hearts. It happened in mine. Over a decade and a half ago, long before I was married to Kate, I ended a season of my life that was caught up in that very sin. God has given me much grace and I haven't gone back since. I understand that we have a mixed group here, that male and female are among us. Um, I know that we also live um, in across the generations, but we cannot and we should not act naive. We live in a porn-saturated culture. Every single one of us, whether we're seven years old, whether we're 70, walks down the Safeway line, sees the magazines, goes to the Bayshore Mall, walks by the giant Victoria's Secrets models there in our face all of the time. And even... America as a, as a whole has moved um, further, has gone further than the whole free love sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. And the whole culture itself, some have said, is becoming pornified through online pornography. So even a past sex symbol like Raquel Welch acknowledges this. In her interview with Men's Health magazine, she speaks to the, to the tenacious impact of pornography in our society, and she says, I think we've gotten to the point in our culture where we're all sex addicts, literally. She goes on to speak of porn's dehumanizing qualities and its negative effect on men. She says this, I just imagine them sitting in front of their computers completely annihilated. They haven't done anything. They don't have a job. They barely have ambition anymore. End quote. Not too long ago, Playboy magazine actually stopped publishing pictures of naked women And while some may see this as a win for women, maybe a sign that the culture is moving away from it, it is clearly not. The issue is that online pornography has made Playboy boring. It offers what researchers call the three A's. Anonymity, accessibility, and affordability. Anonymity, accessibility, and affordability. This means that your nine-year-old or younger may not discover it in dad's workshop or grandpa's car, but they're going to find it on their smartphones intentionally or unintentionally, or they're going to see it from their friend's device when they show it to them. And what they see may be ten times more degrading and debasing than what some saw in the 60s all the way to the 90s. So this means that a weak moment of lustful temptation that arises after an argument with your spouse Uh, maybe a rough day at work, maybe a sleepless night. You don't have that added barrier of social shame where you have to go in and buy the magazine um, to give in to temptation. It's only a couple clicks away, and it's there. It's right there on your smartphone. And you've entered a harem bigger than Solomon's. One Twitter user said, porn is the lifeblood of the Internet. And this is true. One estimate reports that 30%, so a third of all of the data over the Internet is pornography. And so I could just sit here and go through statistics all day long, but I won't. 
Um, but if you don't know already, the usage of pornography on the Internet among males and females in and out of the church, in and out of the church is extraordinarily high. And basically it's ordinary. It's normal. So it's not the exception. It's the rule. So look at the text. I want you to see five things. Number one, Jesus assumes he has the authority to redefine adultery. Jesus assumes he has the authority to redefine adultery. Number two, Jesus redefines adultery as lust. Number three, Jesus demands violence toward lust. Number four, Jesus threatens adulterers with hell. And number five, Jesus saves adulterers. Number one, Jesus assumes he has the authority to redefine adultery. Look at the beginning of the first two verses. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And notice that the quotation that is right in the middle, Jesus is reciting verbatim. You shall not commit adultery directly from the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20.14 and Deuteronomy 5.18. And he's doing it in the Greek Old Testament scriptures. That is the phrase that is used. And so that's astounding. And it would have been heart-stopping for religious leaders of the day to hear And it isn't just what he's saying, that he's saying, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, but it's also how he was saying it, where he's saying it. He's contrasting the Ten Commandments given to God's people at Mount Sinai as he sits and teaches from a mountain. So the imagery for the people of the day is enough to knock their socks off. He's the new Moses, he's gathering a new people, and likely he's giving a new law. And he's doing more. He is making the radical claim that his word is on par with God's word, what Jesus is doing. He's claiming divine authority. He's doing it over and over again in his sermon. It's not like he just slipped up, got a little cocky, said the phrase. We see that phrase over and over and over again. So Jesus is basically going all in. He's putting all of his chips on the table. So imagine if as I'm preaching, I read the words of Jesus this morning, and I said something like, you've heard Jesus say this, but I say to you. What would I be doing? I'd be saying, my words are greater than Jesus' words. We all, we all know that's ridiculous. But this is what Jesus is doing. He's doing what preachers on Sunday mornings should never do. We try to unpack, we try to help make clear what God's word already says. So our authority is derived from the text. We're not making scripture. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. Jesus wasn't doing this. Jesus was not doing this. He's not an ordinary teacher. He does not make ordinary demands. He's the source of his own authority. He can speak the word of God because he is the word of God. And so it matters what Jesus says about anything. It matters what Jesus says about anything because he's divine, because he speaks with divine authority. So what Jesus says about lust is what God says about lust, period. Number two, Jesus redefines adultery as lust. But first, remember that there's a distinction between sexual desire and lust. Noticing attractiveness is not a sin. Sexual desire is not a sin. God gave it to us. Temptation itself is not a sin. So again, we're not prudes. Martin Luther put it like this. It's impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lusts into your heart. But see to it that you do not let such arrows stick there and take root, but tear them out and throw them away. Do what one of the ancient fathers counseled long ago. I cannot, he said, keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair or from biting my nose off. So, in verse 28, Jesus is dealing with what happens when you've already watched the bird fly by or walk by. You've already taken the image and you've indulged it. You've basically snuggled up to it in your own mind. So, verse 28. Eight, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what does Jesus say about lust? He calls it adultery. He says it is adultery. He redefines the inward act of sexual lust itself as the outward act of committing adultery. He's saying if you've lusted, you've broken the seventh commandment. You're a lawbreaker. Lusters are adulterers. They're not different things. Some of the Jewish leaders of the day would have agreed with him. They would have agreed with him. They taught similar things at times. But mainly on a theological level, just a purely ethical something to talk about. But Jesus goes further. 
And he emphasizes the sin of adultery as residing inside the heart. In his heart. Look at the end of that sentence. In his heart. So one of the ways Jesus does this is by explicitly connecting it to coveting. His use of the word lustful desire, lustful desire in the Greek is the same that their, that the people that he was talking to, that their Greek Old Testament would have used for covet. So, sexual lust breaks two commandments, not just one. Number seven and number ten. So Jesus doubles down, like he likes to do. Again, he's destroying these categories of there's these good guys and bad guys. Um, that sinners and adulterers are separate people from us, that the ones who just kind of physically commit the, the act, those are the bad ones. We're not. Jesus is saying to the religious, you may be squeaky clean on the outside, but inside you're filthy. You may have never touched a woman inappropriately, but you have in your imagination. And so he's calling us on our stuff and saying, this sin lives in And the heart is the core of who you are as a person. The heart is the core of who you and I are as a person. So if you're thinking, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of woman. Actually, yes, you are. The kind of person you are lives inside of your heart. Since you've lusted, you've committed adultery. And when we think differently, we're acting like Pharisees. Jesus is also intensifying the sexual ethic here. He's going down to the level of motivation. He's making the law harder to keep. That's why a bit earlier in his sermon in verse 19, he said, whoever relaxes, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will not relax the Old Testament law. Sin is always a heart issue that overflows in our actions. So every sin, every sexual sin starts in the heart. He doesn't let us off the hook. King David on the balcony is King David in the bedroom. It's not different people. And you and I are him. The term Jesus is using for lustful intent in this passage is, like I said, one of coveting, also desire to possess. So according to one commentator, the idea here is staring. Lustful intent, staring. I think of it as leering. It doesn't have to be totally obvious where your jaw drops. He's talking about imaginative, lustful leering. He's talking about intentionally giving in to the temptation where you stoke the fires of lust. So it's adding sinful firewood. It's like it's adding sinful firewood to the non-sinful sexual desire that is there. It's an intentional addition. Pour the firewood on. So it can happen in the presence of a real-life person, a digital image of a person, or a person in your own mind. Jesus is also destroying myths. He's destroying myths that many Mediterranean men of the day held, which every single one of us has heard today, too. The lustful fantasy is not that big of a deal. Online pornography isn't necessarily that big of a deal. They thought it was no big deal, healthy to experiment with, boys will be boys, so to speak, and that's wrong. It's wrong on so many levels. Aside from the fact that Jesus explicitly disagrees, there are implicit things here as well. Lustful fantasy is damaging to the way in which men view women. Jesus hates lust because it distorts love, distorts who he is, while love is self-giving. Lust is self-seeking. It makes the other person exist for your own pleasure alone. It objectifies them. It demeans them. All of it, all fantasy, as well as blatant pornography as well. This breaks, this breaks the heart of Jesus. Consider for a moment the way Jesus treats women throughout the Gospels. He's thinking no lady ever felt like an object to be used when she was around Jesus. Never had the slightest feeling from him. He honors them. He welcomes them with pure intent. He sees them. When he, when he looks at them, when he sees them, he doesn't see them for their parts. He sees them as human beings. He never, Jesus never once had a wandering eye, ever. The four Gospels give a ton of evidence of how Jesus empowered women in a culture where women's rights didn't even exist. 
I think he does so here too. He also does in the verses to come on divorce. And so Jesus is also rebuking men in his culture specifically. And he would do in our day too. And he's rebuking them for the mistreatment of women. Though lust and pornography is not just a male problem, notice how Jesus assumes the man in the text. He assumes the man in the text. He assumes it's him who is looking at the woman lustfully. And he assumes that the problem lies in the heart of the man, not in the appearance of the woman. Many Jewish writers of the day would have had a negative view of sexual lust, but then they would have placed the source problem on the woman instead of residing in the heart of men. A few verses later, when Jesus speaks to the issue of divorce, which Alan is going to talk about, one of the reasons he goes after divorce is because under Jewish law, women couldn't initiate divorce. Therefore, he affirms them by going after contemporary divorce laws that would make it easier for a woman to be mistreated. According to one scholar, the husband could pretty much just decide to drop his wife whenever he wanted to, without any kind of legal hand. Therefore, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is likely calling out men for their inward and outward mistreatment of women. When you divorce a woman for foolish reasons, you are treating her as less than you. When you lust after a woman, you objectify her. You're saying that she exists for your satisfaction. So he will not put up with our tendency as men to treat women as second class in public or in private. He will not. Lust treats women as objects to be consumed. Jesus hates it. It's a distortion of who they are being made in the image of God. There's also a connection of lust to violence. Christian counselor Dan Allender makes this connection. I think he's right. One Greek lexicon basically says that lust longs to possess what belongs to somebody else. Belongs to somebody else, I long to possess that. So if you can't take her with your hands, you'll take her with your imagination. So think of how often lust in our society and probably in some of our lives has turned into violence. Sexual abuse, rape, sex trafficking, prostitution, pornography itself. So inside of the flame of lust is violence. And as Jesus goes on to show, you must get violent with your lustful violence. You must get violent with your lustful violence. That's point three. Jesus demands violence toward lust. Look at verses 29 and 30. Notice the fierceness, the viciousness that Jesus calls for. He says the inner violence of lust must be dealt with ferociously. He calls for cutting off arms. He calls for gouging out eyeballs. So he's using imagery of dismemberment, cutting, gouging. He's being forceful. But isn't Jesus just exaggerating? Did he really really mean what he said? We love to diminish the metaphors here. Commentators spend a lot of time making sure we know that we shouldn't mutilate ourselves. And actually, that's for good reason. Some in church history have actually castrated themselves because of this text. And I think one council even addressed the issue because it was a problem. So Jesus, he didn't really mean to amputate body parts, right? And Jesus, he probably didn't really mean hell. Hell for lust, really? It's not that big of a deal. So we spend so much time saying that Jesus didn't literally mean cut off your hand and gouge out your eye that we basically, we just take all the punch out of everything that he said and we kind of move on. Yes, it's metaphorical. But that does not mean that his point isn't savage. He's saying he's dead serious about fighting lust. He's saying you have to fight it violently. He's saying get extreme. He's saying get extreme with the measures you're going to take against lust. He's saying cut it off at the root. Discard those things in your life that lead you to lust. Proverbs tells us to not just stay away from the adulterous woman, but, quote, keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. So in other words... Stay away from those things that make you susceptible to lust. And there's not a one-size-fits-all approach here. There's not. Maybe for some, it's not having a smartphone or internet connection for a while. Maybe it's some kind of accountability software. Maybe it's just not watching TV for a season. could be anything. But none of those kind of self-imposed rules are in the Bible. So there are a lot of extra-biblical ways we could go, and you may need to go, But one of the biblical ways we do this is through confession. 
confession. And not just to God. Not just to God. One of the worst things, one of the worst things that you can do for yourself if you're really struggling in this area is just keep it between you and Jesus. One of the worst things you can do. You're not going to be able to fix it. Bring it to the light. Confess it. Tell a Christian friend. And if you're looking at pornography and you're married, you must tell your spouse. You must tell your spouse as well. Also encourage um, spouses to talk about this, to ask each other how they're doing. Husbands, ask your wives. Wives, ask your husbands. Get direct. Don't lie. Encourage parents to talk to their kids about this when you think it's appropriate. But remember that the age you think it's appropriate is probably sooner than you think it is. Sometimes there are other sinful issues that are linked to lust. Um, Some counselors call this the sin underneath the sin. So it could be that the real issue isn't a pornography habit, but the fact that you're using sexual lust to medicate. And so instead of finding satisfaction in the fact that you're 100% approved of God in Christ, when you don't get that approval from somebody else, from a spouse, from from a friend, um, from a boss, that you cope with your identity issue with lust. If you could find your worth and identity in the Savior who loves you and gave himself for you, maybe the lust issue would drop. It could also be that you yourself were actually sinned against in a horrific way, that you were maybe sexually abused. So there are deep hurts that have contributed to your own sinful patterns. So deep hurts, genuine, you've been sinned against. But again, your own sinful heart has contributed to those patterns along the way. So if so, get help. Jesus cares for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to set us free. So Jesus is pleading with you to get to the root, to cut off anything that contributes to finding temporary satisfaction in sinful lust instead of him. The pain of what you cut off and deal with will be much less than the pain of continuing in your bondage. Number four, Jesus threatens adulterers with hell. So again, Jesus is serious. He threatens hell for those who do not make war on their sin. The Greek word for hell means hell. Uh, Logos Sense describes it as a place of darkness and fiery torment where sinners suffer eternal punishment. So the penalty, Jesus says, when you stoke the fires of lust is that you will be placed in the fires of eternal hell. One commentator said that Jesus' point is that, quote, it's infinitely better to go limping into heaven than to go leaping into hell. And that's true. But I think his point's even bigger. Jesus is saying, all of you, Every single one of you have broken the law. All of you have lusted. All of you deserve hell. He's saying the reason why the Old Testament penalty for adultery was physical death is because the penalty for sexual lust is eternal death. You can externally keep the Ten Commandments. You can be squeaky clean on the outward side and still wind up in hell. And so what Jesus is doing is he's causing us to say, who can be saved? No one. No one can be saved by themselves. Jesus wants us to feel that. He wants us to to know that as we listen to what he says, we cannot do this on our own. Anger is murder. Lust is adultery. Not keeping your promises is evil. Or some translations say evil is from the devil, the evil one. You must be perfect. doing this to show us our powerlessness, our helplessness. But the good news, the good news is that the teacher who is teaching with new authority is more than a teacher. He's more than a teacher. He's the Savior. The one who says these things about lust saves people from the penalty of their lust. The one who, like Moses, gives the law from another mountain died on a hill for lawbreakers who would trust him. So number five, Jesus saves adulterers. These four verses don't say that. But the rest of Matthew's gospel does. 
The whole Sermon on the Mount is to make us cry out, we are undone. We're finished. We're broken. We're full of lust, adultery. What can I do? Matthew felt the same way. Matthew felt the same way. He knew he was a sinner. We read it earlier this morning. Matthew tells his story in like one sentence how he followed Jesus, but he follows it with how Jesus came to save sinners just like him. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. I love how he does that. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew. Matthew writing. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the, t- at the booth, at the tax booth, and said, follow me. He rose and followed him. And then Matthew keeps writing. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew knew he was sick. He knew he needed a doctor. He knew he couldn't pay for his sins himself, and you can't either. You don't have enough arms, you don't have enough eyes to pay the sins of your lusts. You could all walk around limbless, eyeless, still going to be there, still going to be in our hearts. The only way to kill lust and to pay for lust is to die. But the good news is, you don't have to. You don't have to die. You don't have to mutilate yourself. Jesus was tortured. Jesus died, so we won't have to. The penalty for lust that Jesus, the teacher, threatens, he takes upon himself because he's also the Savior. He dies in the place of adulterers. He rises again to bring them back to newness of life. So that's the gospel for your past. He forgives sinners freely, fully, any sinner. Look at him, welcoming, reclining with them. If you don't know this, Jesus, turn to him. Follow him. Trust him. But this is also the gospel for your present, for your future. Jesus' death for you is not just the payment for your lustful crimes, but the power to overcome present lusts. And so grace is bigger than forgiveness. It's the power to change. The gospel is not only forgiveness for your past, but empowerment for your future. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is not only how you get into the Christian life, but it's power all the way through the Christian life. So the power, the power to kill any kind of sinful sexual fantasy and the place where we get the muscle, where we get the muscle to overcome addictions to pornography or any kind of fantasy is not self-effort. It's in the beautiful Savior. Jesus came to save sinners. What great news. He came to save you. He came to save you in that very spot that you feel the most guilt. Maybe lust isn't, isn't yours. Maybe it's something else. But the place that you experience the most shame, the most regret, that's the place Jesus came to save. Here's a test to see how well you know the gospel and how well you know Jesus. Let's say last night, for two hours while everyone was sleeping, you were looking at pornography online. So here you are in church today, looking at the Bible, looking at everyone around you, and you feel defeated. You feel guilty. You feel shame. You feel numb. You've given up. Or again, maybe it was something else. Now imagine Jesus walks into your room last night, right in the midst of your sin. How does Jesus look at you? What's the look on his face? What do do the eyes of Jesus say to you? We have a record of Jesus looking at someone right in the midst of their sin. And their worst moment. It's not the sin of lust, but it's the repeated sinful desires, or excuse me, repeated sinful denials of Peter on the hardest night of Jesus' life. In Luke twenty two, thirty one to thirty four. Luke twenty two, thirty one to thirty four. Simon Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny it three times. 
So it's here that Jesus predicts Peter's sinful denial before it even happens. And notice that Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. He says, mercifully, that you're going to be restored. You're going to strengthen your brothers. So Jesus speaks grace to his failure before they even happen. What does Peter do with all the self-gumption, with all the self-will? That's not going to happen, Jesus. I'm going to die with you. Peter doesn't die with Jesus. He denies him repeatedly. But Jesus dies with Peter. Jesus looks directly at him in the midst of his failure before he heads to die on the cross. Luke 22, 55-61. When they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know you. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. If Jesus' eyes could speak, what kind of words would those eyes say? The eyes that looked upon Peter were eyes of mercy. The eyes of the one Peter sinned against were the eyes of the one that had promised to restore him. They were the eyes of the God-man who was headed to die for the sins of Peter and people like Peter. Jesus looks at sinners with those same eyes. Scripture goes on to say that Peter wept bitterly. Of course he would. Mercy and repentance go hand in hand. Romans tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us there. So sure, Jesus' threats lead to repentance. They're scary. But his kind grace is his best medicine. So Jesus' eyes, through the word, are looking at you today. and They are the eyes of self-giving love. They are not the eyes of lust. Self-giving love that gives itself in place of self-seeking men and women. You may be just like Peter, caught right in the midst of your sin, caught the night after, so to speak, and Jesus has come to save you. He's looking at you with eyes of mercy. He's offering himself in your place. He doesn't want your cut-off hands. He doesn't want your gouged-out eyes. He wants all of you. He wants you to experience freedom, not bondage. He comes to set you free. So if Jesus walked into your room in the midst of your sin, think his eyes would be full of mercy. Yes, they would flash with fire, of infinite purity, with holiness, but they would gleam with grace. So I don't believe the power to change in that moment comes from the shame you feel when he walks in the room and you go cower in the corner, soaked in shame. He didn't come to shame. He came to save. The power, the power to change comes from, and the glory of Jesus is revealed primarily in the freedom you feel when he walks in the room and he grabs you and he embraces you. To restore you, to offer you mercy. His kindness leads to repentance. Jesus warns a hellfire to sober us. But it's only mercy that's going to rescue you. This doctor's in the business of fixing broken people. Broken people, even sexually broken people, are who he came for. So if you haven't trusted Christ, turn to him. He's the Savior. He's also the judge. One day he will be, he will be the one, the Savior will be the one sending people into the lake of fire. But right now, offering mercy. Trust him. If you have trusted Jesus, but you're still deeply struggling with sexual lust or anything, of course, your sins are forgiven. Freedom can be found. His intent for you is not to walk in bondage, but to walk in freedom as a son and daughter, putting sin to death. Not perfect freedom. But he means us to walk in the light. 
This kind of sin thrives in secret places. It needs to be brought into the light. Kills your soul and kills your marriage. Kills relationships. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I like even better what John Piper said. Fight like victors, not like victims. If you fight defeated, you're fighting wrong. Our fight is out of the victory that Jesus won for us. We kill sin because we're dead to it already. You died with Christ, so fight sin like hell with the power of the one who came to rescue you from it. So, let's celebrate his victory for us and then take communion. Thank you. 
remember John's gospel tells us that the resurrected Jesus came back to the disciples when they were fishing one day. Cooked some fish for them on the seashore. And he made them a meal. Made them fish. Typical. We have a meal before us today. At that meal, Jesus restored Peter three times for future ministry. So we come to this meal now where Jesus is calling you and I to remember him. Maybe it will be a time where in repentance and remembrance your heart's restored. Maybe it's a time where there's a new level of freedom for life and ministry. Quit hiding stuff in whatever sin you deal with. In the ups and downs, keep following Jesus. Jesus ended his words to Peter and John, you follow me. So let's go do that as our church. Amen. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, Father, as we follow you, we follow Christ. May we remember your great grace. Help us this week in the day-to-day of our lives. Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.